Welcome to Scores and Pours. It's the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. Today, we're going to talk about what has the Emerald Isle given to drinks, one very specifically, and classical music. That's right. It's all about Ireland. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everyone. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hi, Jill Mott. Top of the something to you. Why, hello, Emily (laughs) Reese. You can't help yourself. I just really can't. We had uh, just a three-minute introduction where I couldn't stop speaking in the worst Irish accent ever, so I'm going to stop right now. (laughs) I might sneak one in after a couple sips of whiskey, but... um, We'll see. What are you going to talk about today? Uh, I'm going to talk about an Irish composer, and you're going to talk about Irish booze. I am. I'm going to focus on a very extremely popular drink that came to the United States from Western Ireland, and it's still very much so served in both countries today, and it's served all over the world. More than a million a day are likely served, which is pretty crazy for a drink that not a lot of people really think about as a popular drink, or Mm -hmm. maybe it's specifically a morning drink or something. So. Uh, a morning tipple, if you will. <laughs> I effing love that word, and I'm going to use it eight times in this show. That's one. Okay. So, and so what is the drink? Uh, I'm going to talk about Irish coffee. Love that. We're going to talk a little bit about, just a touch about whiskey, maybe a little bit about Guinness, but let's, for oh. our St. Paddy's Day edition, yeah. let's talk about an Irish coffee. I love that. I'm so excited. Yeah. And which Irish composer? Well, I'm going to talk about an Irish composer who, I mean is arguably not even really that Irish because of how early he left Ireland. But uh, we're going to talk about John Field, who made a tremendous impact on the world of classical music through some very specialized piano pieces that he wrote. So I look forward to talking about John Field today. What what should we start with? Well, I mean, let's start with the Irish whiskey, because we're actually going to go make it together And uh, so let's talk about it a little bit, then maybe we'll get some music in there, whatever. The Irish coffee consists of, of course, coffee, Mm -hmm. little brown sugar, and this is is like highly debated, right? There's like, some people say white sugar, some people say sugar cubes, some people say, you know... Um, oh. I'm sure you go to some hippie place, hippie cocktail bar, and they're going to do agave syrup in your Irish coffee. <laughs> Not how I do it. Okay. okay. So I use um, really great quality coffee, brown sugar, homemade whipped cream. I don't put vanilla in it. I don't put sugar in it. You just whip the cream. And oh, in the, in the cream. In the you cream, You don't put, yeah. okay. So, and then, of course, um, a little bit of Irish whiskey. Mm-hmm. And it's that simple. You can really screw it up by like putting too much booze in it or too much sugar in it. Mm-hmm. I've tried to, I was in a phase where I wasn't in the mood for sweet things and I made one without sugar and it was nasty. So the sugar <laughs> just really helps like cut the heat of of whiskey. Yeah, because um, when I think about it, I don't mean to interrupt, but I mean, coffee is so such an acidic thing, right? I mean, coffee is really strong flavored, but so is whiskey, not acidic, but really strong flavor. And it, it does make you wonder how those two could blend together. And it sounds like sugar helps. Sugar does help. And so does the whipped cream. And the crazy thing too about this drink is when you go, I remember the first one I had in Ireland and I was like, this sucks. <laughs> And it was because the cream was perfect. The cream, I learned that you can't have it, you can't whip it too hard. You need it to be a little bit softer okay. um, of, a, of a whipped cream. Um, but you, 
you have to really use good coffee. Like you can't use something that's overly roasted or, you know, Folgers, no. We don't mean to call them out, obviously. Yeah, but, you but, know, like, but something that's kind of like a weaker coffee. You need something that's got, that's a nice medium roast, but that has some. Yeah. Well, let's go make it. Let's go make it. So it's very important to, I think, to, as you're making your coffee, get your ingredients set up. So um, I, I'm doing it in a small, ridiculous wine glass because I, let, I want um, Emily to be able to see the beautiful layers. But you can serve it in a mug. A clear mug is actually preferred, so you can see the layer of whipped cream. I always prime my glass with a little bit of hot water um, just to keep the, the Irish coffee... A little warmer as as we're as we're enjoying it. So I'm brewing about 350 grams of coffee um, that I'm probably not going to use the whole thing because I only need approximately one cup of coffee. It's always important to taste just a little nip, even if you just give it a little lick of your Irish whiskey before you put it into your mug. I think it just like shows a little respect. I'm measuring out my 350 grams to make one cup of, of coffee. I'm, I'm separating out coffee, so there is a little bit left over if I want it. So I'm going to, in a, in a, like a measuring cup here, I'm dissolving one tablespoon of sugar. Brown sugar. Brown sugar, thank you. Mm -hmm. Into a freshly made pot of coffee, one cup. I'm using Kickapoo's Ethiopia right now, just in case you're curious. <laughs> I love Kickapoo. Hashtag Kickapoo all day out of Milwaukee. I think they do a great job. Um, some people might prefer a little bit of a darker roast, like something from Latin America or South America. Um, but I, I like the high kind of piquant flavors of something from Africa, I think, with an Irish coffee because you have deep oak flavors and kind of sweetness with... Um, Irish whiskeys, and so, so just taste this alone, Emily. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's oh. the first sip of coffee I've had in more than 20 years, by the way. Wow, that's pretty fucked it's up. It's delicious. All right, so, <laughs> so we're going to put about an ounce and a half of Bushmills. Any Irish whiskey will do. I don't particularly like Jameson for it. I think it's a little bit too smoky, but it would do. I really like Tullamore Dew. My preferred is Bushmills. Redbreast is okay. Redbreast gets a little bit like you can't really taste it. Oh, I'm so excited. So on top of the ounce and a half of Bushmills, we'll pour in the coffee that already has. It's one cup of coffee and one tablespoon approximately of brown sugar. Once in a while, I'll go a little less than that, but um, you'll see this leaves like just adequate amount <laughs> for... Yeah, it fills um, the glass perfectly. There's like an inch of space at the top. And so I, I beat, um, made some fresh whipped cream this morning. Um, it, it, you should beat it so that you, you know, it'll, it'll kind of. It's a little runny. Yeah. Like it's almost bit. like it'll run off the spoon, but it won't, it's not like thick. And the reason why is if it's too thick, it's not going to, it's not going to sit well on the top of the, it's going to sink or it's just going to become like this blob. And should we go sit down quick and. Yeah.
That was the making of the Irish coffee. Amazing. Now here's the taste test. So, so the taste test when you ta when you drink an Irish coffee, you kind of almost like a Guinness. You kind of need to tip your head back so that you can get a little bit of the froth with the dark beer. This you want you want to have it go slide under. And it should be. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Is it I good? fucking love March. <laughs> it's the only time of year I let my have my uh, let let myself have an Irish coffee. Yeah, so you gotta just do this. Yeah, I just poured it all down my throat. I know. I don't front. think you watched. Ready? Check it. Like, oh, it's so good. Yeah. Why isn't coffee always like this? <laughs> so that's the Irish coffee. What do you think of oh. how it tastes? This is phenomenal. It, first of all, uh, seriously, literally, for not having had coffee in that many years, I I love coffee. I've missed coffee my whole life, and that was a really amazing, wonderful way to have it. Uh, but what I think I love about it so much is how smooth it is. Everything mm. about it is smooth. Everything blends together into one. And that's the art of a good Irish coffee. You can, like, you can make a really bad Irish coffee. You know, if the yeah. the whipped cream is beaten too hard if you use if you say like i like a stronger drink and you try to make it stronger then or if you don't put enough whiskey then it's, mm -hmm. why even put whiskey in it so it's just like a really fun drink that isn't too complicated yet you you kind of need to i don't know this for me this these proportions work out well and we'll tell you more of the history of the irish coffee after we listen to some music love that yeah let's listen to some music So I'm going to talk about an Irish composer named John Field. John was born in Dublin in 1782 and lived in Ireland for about the first 10 years of his life and then never really went back. He ended up in Russia eventually. And we're going to talk a little bit about John Field in life, but we're going to hear some of his piano music. He was a piano prodigy. He moved to London when he was about 10 years old to start studying with a uh, pianist named Muzio Clementi, who was also a piano maker. And eventually they went, they ended up touring together and ended up in Russia, which is where John Field spent the majority of his life was in, in Russia as a concert pianist and a composer. He made a huge, uh, he changed the world by an invention of a form called the nocturne. And so we'll hear some of his nocturnes. And then just for funsies, we'll hear that contrasted with one of his piano sonatas. So you can hear the difference in the style between what he was trying to achieve by writing a nocturne. Which means, which nocturne meaning a music that evokes the feeling of night. The feeling right? of night. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's just a short little character piece of sorts. You mm -hmm. know, they're just a few minutes long and there are many things we can say about them stylistically and we'll get there. So we're going to talk about... The Nocturne, which then a Polish composer named Chopin ran with and wrote many famous nocturnes. So. And the percentage of, of folks out there that listen to classical music, uh, we'll say, you know, just uh, Joe Schmo, we're not talking mm -hmm. about conductors or anything, Yeah, yeah. that recognize the name Chopin over mm -hmm. John Field. Oh, yeah. Everybody's heard of Chopin for the most part. Yep. And most people have not heard of John Field. And even then, people would... More than likely, if you play them, in particular, a Nocturne by Chopin, his Opus 9, Number 2 Nocturne, you'll probably have heard it before. You know, you'll think, yeah, I've, I've heard that somewhere. Yeah. It's a very famous stuff. Um, all because of John Field. 
Awesome. Well, let's yeah. listen to some. Yeah, let's go ahead and listen. So uh, we might as well start talking a little bit more about the Nocturne. Apparently, John Field was praised as a pianist for his very light touch and able to just um, be very delicate with a piano. And he also used what's called the sustain pedal a lot. And if you hold the sustain pedal down, it lifts all the all the dampers off the strings. And so uh, it just it does what it says. It allows those notes to ring and to sustain. And it's a very lovely um, feature of a piano in any event. So John Field, known for his light touch, his delicate maneuvering about the keyboard and the use of the sustain pedal, all of which you'll hear in these nocturnes that he wrote. So let's hear John Field's nocturne number one. about as unoffensive as it gets. And you can hear sustain pedal because you'll hear the resonance of the piano and then you'll hear it cut off really quick when he lifts, when he's lifting the pedal back up. You know what I mean? You can kind of hear that transition. It's kind of subtle, but... Um, to put it in a different way, you hear the keys when he's putting the keys, when he's pressing down on them, those notes last. Mm -hmm. So some of the characteristics of a nocturne, you can hear a very clear melody in the right hand, and in the left hand, the lower notes, you hear broken chords. So instead of playing, uh, you know, big block chords, multiple notes at a time, you hear this broken up motion in the left hand. Arpeggiated chords. Yep. So just very kind of a lulling feel to that and um, just very calm and beautiful. And as my sister would say, go down and out for sleepy time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is the very first nocturne. Can we listen to just kind of back to back? Were, you, were we going to listen to 10? Oh, what? yeah, we can listen to 10. Just to hear a different one back to back to hear how how similar the arpeggiated chords are on the left hand and the melody mm -hmm. on the right hand but in a different form yeah this one is a lot darker this is this one's in the key of e minor so this is a little uh darker but still beautiful nocturne um nocturne number 10 now this one i have a lot of feelings about because it reminds me very much of a very famous nocturnal beethoven piece uh but let's listen to this for a minute and then we can talk about that later that left hand breaking up those chords 
Well, there was a there was clear a, melody in the right hand. Yep, there was a part in the in number one that reminded me of a very famous piece as well that we can go back to if we okay. want. But um, yeah, I love this one so much. I mean, who? Let's be honest. So on St. Patty's Day, you could wake up and be like, "I'm gonna go party, watch someone like turn a river green, go have green Miller Light, and get blasted, and wear you know green to make a fool out of myself." Or you could wake up, make yourself an Irish coffee, mm-hmm. listen to a Nocturne, even though it's 9 a.m. <laughs> and just it's good to be alive on St. Yeah. Patty's Day when you can appreciate mm-hmm. some of these things that the Emerald Isle has given us. Yes. Such beautiful music from John Field. John Field, who took very brief lessons from the same teacher, one of the same teachers that uh, Ludwig von Beethoven had. John Field was younger than Beethoven, but very familiar with Beethoven and very familiar with Beethoven's keyboard works. And to me, this is very much inspired by the Moonlight Sonata, which is one of Beethoven's piano sonatas. It's so similar to it, even in some of the dotted rhythms uh, right now. I mean, it's so Moonlight Sonata right there. It really, uh, I find that really profound and interesting. Here's what the Beethoven sounds like, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, which is his 14th piano sonata. This is what the John Field Nocturne sounds like, Nocturne number 10. Okay, so should we talk about the history of this drink that's almost gone in yeah, front of us? Yeah, because, yeah, we've got more, oh, the next one. The next Nocturne oh. we're going to hear compared to a Chopin Nocturne, I think it'll blow your mind, but that's just me. Is this uh, number 12? Yeah. Word. Let's talk about the history of the Irish coffee because um, as we sip it and it's delicious and we can see how easy it is to make, um, when you fly into Ireland, you either fly into Dublin or to the Shannon Airport. And I've only ever flown into the Dublin Airport, but I've heard like the Shannon, just like the approach of Shannon is very beautiful. So we're on the far western part of, of the country in County Limerick, which is the southwest. Um, this is where... It's looks it's F O Y N E S Foynes. I need to take that away from Emily Reese. She takes like beer like gob <laughs> like slugs of the Irish coffee. It's gonna last us like five seconds. Okay. So there's a Shannon estuary and Foyne it looks like Foyna or Foynes, depending on the language you're speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh Foynes is just across the estuary on the southern part from in County Limerick from Shannon, which is in County Clare, okay. just north of the estuary. Gotcha. And Foynes was a very popular airport. It was one of the biggest in Europe for like civilian. Oh wow! Like an airport okay. for civilian travel. Yeah. Um, in the 30s and 40s, and there was supposedly a a Pan Am flight. I think it was in 43, but the early 1940s, that a group from New York was about to depart for New York from Foynes. Okay. They had to return to the airport to the irish airport because of bad weather Mm -hmm. and there was a a very famous i guess locally famous uh (laughs) chef by the name of joe sheridan uh who was instructed 
make something warm for these people to eat, make something warm to drink. Okay. And he, you know, he made an Irish coffee. He made it almost exactly the way that I'm making it now. Obviously, the coffee was a little different. Yeah. The cream probably tasted better because they're <laughs> freaking Irish cows. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, maybe he was using brown sugar. Maybe he wasn't. But that became like people left that experience and were like, oh, my God. We had this caffeinated beverage with whipped cream and booze, and it was delicious. <laughs> so uh, this reporter, his name is Stanton Delaplane, and he worked for the San Francisco Chronicle uh, in the 50s, early 50s. He was supposedly either on that plane or he knew about, he heard about that experience, and he wanted to replicate it. So he went to the Buena Vista Cafe, either chatted with the owner or the bartenders, and they started to replicate this beverage. And now the Buena Vista Cafe in San Francisco makes 2,000 <laughs> Irish coffees a day. A day? That's 730,000 Irish coffees a flipping year, people. <laughs> that's a lot of Irish coffees. And if you yeah. think of, that's probably, I mean, there there's someone that actually like beat that record somewhere in like Savannah, Georgia. They made like 2,300 Irish coffees in one day or something. <clears throat> Irish coffee is a drink to be respected. Yeah. People love the Irish coffee. So I'm sorry. So it was a thing before that chef at that airport made it. He just made it for them. It's been around forever. So, no, I, oh, I don't okay. think so. I think that, you know, that's that's where the contested nature comes about. But gotcha. I think he was like, well, it's the evening hours. You know, people probably want coffee so they can stay up and, mm -hmm. you know, like warm themselves. But also yeah. like, do they, I don't know, do they yeah. want to like stay up to be able to, be awake for their flight. I don't know why they he like yeah, yeah. made it with coffee instead of like a chamomile tea or something. <laughs> but and supposedly someone was like, "Is this Brazilian coffee?" And he was like, "It's Irish coffee." And <laughs> that's <laughs> kind of where that stuck. Got okay, its name. Okay, gotcha. Um, but whiskey in Ireland has been around since the 1400s at least. And Bushmills is the was the first. The reason that I use Bushmills not only because I really like the flavor, but they're the first uh, ever licensed whiskey distillery. In order to make whiskey, first you need to make beer, and you need to make really low alcohol beer. So you need to make you need to soak grains, you need to germinate your grains, soak grains. There's available sugars, and so you're able to have alcohol because wine has available sugars via grape juice. Grains don't have that. You have to make that sugar available, and that's where the germination process comes to play. But we'll just say make a low-alcohol beer, put that beer in a still, and then distill it twice so that you're you're creating a higher alcohol, low spirit. Okay. And then you're creating a higher alcohol spirit. Okay. And then if you distill it again, many, you know, some people would argue that you're getting rid of flavor the more you distill but Bushmills wants a really clean, beautiful whiskey. They also are going to age it in oak, so it's going to take on the properties of sure. oak. Just a, a quick couple facts about Irish whiskey that are kind of cool. So there's a word called, um, it looks, it's U-I-S-C-E-B-E-A-T-H-A, and it's pronounced like Uska Baha, which okay. translates to water of life. Okay. And this isn't really new. I mean, the Romans and or back in times where like Latin was the main language, mm -hmm. we have aquavite, like things that were distilled, water of life. Yeah. Let's be honest, water of forgetting hard times. <laughs> but like the word whiskey comes from people not being able to pronounce 
Wiskabaha. Wiskabaha, they would pronounce it. They'd look at it and they'd pronounce it like whiskey. Yeah. Something like that. And so that's where we get the current translation Neat. today of whiskey is from an old Scottish Irish Gaelic mm-hmm. term for so, water of life. For water of life. Beautiful. With that, I'll just have this water mixed with sugar and cream <laughs> and I'll pass it to you. That sounds good. So we're going to talk about another nocturne by John Field. And then we're going to listen to. A Nocturne by Frederick Chopin. We're going to listen to Frederick Chopin's most famous nocturne. I referred to it earlier. It's his Opus 9, number 2. I refer to the Opus number because Chopin wrote nocturnes in sets. So his Opus 9 set just had a few in there, and it was his first set. So Chopin wrote his first set of nocturnes in 1830, so at least 15 years after John Field had written his Chopin knew of the nocturnes. Chopin knew who John Field was. So let's listen to Chopin's Opus 9, number 2. This is Chopin's Nocturne in E-flat major. Now we're going to listen to John Field's Nocturne, number 12. Here's Chopin. And here's John Field. So many similarities between those two. For sure. And both start with that pickup, which I think is very common in nocturnes to start not on beat one, but they start right before beat one. field we'll listen to just to give you an idea of how different that sounded than say what he would write for a piano sonata we'll hear a piano sonata of John Fields coming up in just a little bit before we get to his piano sonata I thought we'd talk for five seconds about Guinness yes I have a bone to pick with Guinness and I love Guinness well Guinness was a porter before it was a stout. Really? Um, it was a little bit stronger in alcohol to be able to be more stable. Okay. Um, it probably had a little bit more extract, like a thicker beer. Now it's, you know, people are like, Guinness is so heavy. No, it's not. Guinness it's is not. less than 6% alcohol. It's like right around, hovers right around five. It's one of the lowest calorie beers around. Hey, people going on a run, have a Guinness. <laughs> Don't have Michelob Golden Ultra or whatever that is. But Back in the day, too, it was likely a little bit sour and probably a little smoked, too, because Guinness was a name, I think, in the like mid to late 1700s became a name um, uh, in a brewery, and Arthur Guinness was the one who established the brewery. So it's kind of cool when we think about the history of Guinness now. There's like Guinness Nitro IPAs and stuff like that that I just don't understand why Guinness had to jump on the IPA. I, th- I thought I saw a, like a white stout at some point and I was like, what? Weird. Anyway, but so it was likely a slightly sour, slightly smoked beer first and then okay. it became a stout and that was obviously the, you know, 
where Guinness made its mark and still is today. Mm-hmm. Um, in the country, it's um, as far as I know, it's not pasteurized when you go to Ireland, and I think around the world it is. One thing about Guinness that's strange is Guinness is brewed all over the world. So sometimes when we get Guinness here in the States, like it's brewed, uh, their foreign export beer, I think, is brewed in um, Canada. Really? Um, they just set up shop on the East Coast, a Guinness brewery to satisfy the thirst and yeah. it'll be cheaper to, to transport and stuff. Right. And it doesn't mean the beer is worse, but it's, it's definitely going to be different. It's right? going to be, it's going to, yeah. So to, the authentic flavor of Guinness is not only changing, but the story of Guinness is too, which is um, yeah. kind of will be an interesting one to follow in the next, the next handful of years. Mm-hmm. But I always like right around this time I buy a little four pack of Guinness. Do you? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't drink Guinness often, but I buy a little four pack and I like will make my Irish coffee and I'll read my James Joyce and it kind of, I'll like rekindle my love affair because I love that country. Um, And yeah. yeah, So, so I'm sure you've been to the top of the brewery in Ireland where they give you the free pint. I did. And you get to see the whole city around there. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I um I decided that I was gonna keep count when I arrived of the amount of Guinness I drank, the like the the number of pints or something, and on on hour eight I lost count. <laughs> and I still have a photo that I I look at you know once in a while when I remember it uh, that I I got off the plane, we went straight to this bar. We're like, well, we're waiting to check into our little you know hostel at the time or whatever. Yeah, and I was hanging out with this like 80 year old man (laughs) talking about the history of ireland at the end of the at the end of our stay at this bar i like we were both holding a guinness i had his hat on (laughs) (laughs) yeah you did (laughs) and i at the time i was like 24 you know just let's let's just hang out with the 80 year old men let's learn some stories Mm -hmm. Mm, guinness yum didn't uh pregnant ladies used to drink guinness they did. They used to prescribe a certain ration of Guinness a day because it had a lot of iron in it. So like whenever women, you're on your menstrual cycle and you're like, God, well, you know, ibuprofen, the things nah. just go biased out. Preferably Guinness doesn't have a lot of alcohol like a lot of other ones do. So amazing. Shall we listen to just a tiny bit more, John Field? Yes, please. Okay. So this is fun because when you listen to one of John Field's nocturnes and one of his piano sonatas back to back, um, it becomes pretty clear you can describe the difference between the two. They sound very different. Mm-hmm. Would you agree yeah. when you listen? Yeah. Well, let's listen to a little bit of piano sonata number one by John Field. this someone told me this was mozart i'd be like yeah (laughs) probably you know it's very stylistically different isn't it i mean i love it though it's so happy
Cheers to the Emerald Isle. <laughs> I love it. We don't have anything to cheers with. Tragic. <laughs> she just gets out the bottle of whiskey. <laughs> yes. This is probably the first and the only time we'll do this on Scores and Pours. With... <laughs> With whiskey, <laughs> with whiskey, a shot glass, and there's a tiny bit of sh- whiskey in a shot glass, and a tiny bit of whiskey in a champagne flute. <laughs> <laughs> Which was the closest thing around. Cheers. Discords and pours. I can't do all that. <laughs> I just can't do all that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this St. Patty's Day edition of Scores and Pours with myself, Jill Mott, and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours and Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, we rely on donations here and would love your support for as little as $1 a month. You can join at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. That's as little as one euro a month, too, if you're living in Ireland. Uh, (laughs) Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc.